and welcome to the Editor's Podcast, highlighting some of the contents of the April 2017 issue of AJPH. This is Alfredo Morabia, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief. One of the themes discussed in this issue is that of driverless cars, which raise some public health questions in terms of traffic, transit, but also in terms of ethics. In this podcast, I will interview Janet Fleetwood, the author of a paper in this issue of the journal entitled Public Health Ethics and Autonomous Vehicles. And I also interview Noah Goodall, who wrote an editorial about Janet Fleetwood's paper. We discuss their vision of a future in which most cars are driverless and the ethical issues that this phenomenon raises for public health. In the second part of this podcast, after an interlude of Motown music prepared by Francis Jacob, I will interview Sherry Gleed, who is dean and professor at uh, New York University and is an expert on health insurance. And uh, she'll tell us about her assessment of the future of Obamacare under the new administration. So let's call Professor Janet Fleetwood. Hello? Yes, hello. Hey, Janet Fleetwood. Thank you yes, very much for yeah, thank you very much for being you know on this call it's it's part of uh, AJPH uh, podcast and um, just uh, let me uh, remind that uh, you are a professor of community health and prevention at the Dornsife School uh, School of Public Health uh, Drexel University right That is correct Thank you. And um, so I, I, I'm calling and I want to talk to you because you, you got to help me out, you know. I found your paper fascinating. But uh, also, you know, of all the problems we have today, you know, why deal with this one and make the, the cover of the journal uh, on this topic? So I want to know what got you interested in this issue? Well, first, thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've always been very interested in public health, of course, but, but really in cars. Um, ever since I was a little kid, the very first public health and, and safety campaign that, that I was aware of was the Buckle Up for Safety campaign. If you remember that, if you yes, were a child, child in the 60s, there was this cute little jingle that we all used to sing on the playground. And seatbelts were a big thing. I remember when we got them in our car. And that interesting. You know, in, in New York, it was Don't Be Stupid. Buckle up. Ah. That was, that was <laughs> what you run in taxes. Yeah. And since then, I've sort of watched as um, public safety and public health has really paid attention to cars and seatbelts, airbags, anti-lock brakes. All the things that have been big parts of automotive technology since then have really impressed me. And so the idea of autonomous vehicles that could really um, make a tremendous difference in um, morbidity and mortality from motor vehicle accidents just gripped my attention immediately. But so do you imagine a, a society uh, how many years from now in which most of the vehicle will be uh, autonomous, driven without drivers? 
Well, I, I couldn't even begin to speculate on that. You know, that sounds a little like something from uh, Epcot at Disney World. Um, mm. I don't think that's right around the corner. But on the other hand, I do think that autonomous vehicles are, are on their way, so to speak. Um, there's a burst of optimism and enthusiasm about them. There's increased funding for them um, from lots of different sources. There's mm. real investment in developing the technology to make them work. And we're seeing really great improvements in um, in their safety and their ability to actually do what they do best. So I think that they are going to be transformative in, um, you know, in, in motor vehicles. And in, as we think about motor vehicle safety, our thoughts are going to change from, um, you know, making accidents less serious and from protecting people when there are accidents through airbags, through seatbelts, to preventing those accidents altogether. So there's great potential, but there are issues that I think public health experts should be thinking about. I know. But, but I mean, uh, before we get to that, uh, shouldn't we be worried as, as public health people that to see that the individual car now is going to be uh, uh, developed much more than uh, public transportation, for example? Yes. Yes, I, I absolutely do think that that's an issue, and I raised that briefly in my paper. Um, you know, we're putting a lot of attention and expertise and money and um, thought on developing a better way for people to drive themselves to work, potentially alone. Um, that, of course, flies in the face of public health's emphasis on more bike lanes and better walking paths and a different kind of built environment. So I do think that's one of the areas where public health experts should be ringing in and um, discussing the impact and, and how this will all work out if we're, in fact, going to increase um, independent autonomous vehicles. Now, that's not to say there won't be public transportation. I mean, people are also looking at buses um, in the same kind of way, and that might be um, a more public health-friendly um, alternative. Aren't you surprised that autonomous uh, vehicle can be uh, safer than uh those uh, having a driver? Well, it, it takes away, or is designed, hopefully, to take away the human error piece of it. Um, and if it can actually do that, then that would be wonderful. It takes away impaired drivers as well, um, beyond human errors, you know, drivers who might be under the influence. So mm -hmm. it, it does that as well. Um, it also provides, potentially, a really wonderful um, option for people who can't drive through disabilities or, or other reasons. So I That's think there's right. a lot of positive there. Um, and I don't want to get away from that. Um, I, I do think they are potentially transformational. But, um, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding and whether they will make better decisions than human drivers when faced with, you know, real calamities remains to be seen. Yeah, that's a very good point. Your paper is entitled uh, Public Health Ethics and Autonomous Vehicles. Uh, you're a philosopher, right? I am, yes. I also have a master's degree in public health. Yeah, I know, but uh, you're, uh, what's, what's uh, more rare in this context is to have a philosopher discuss those issues, right? You have yes. a PhD in philosophy, right? I do, yes. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so tell us a little bit about uh, the ethical aspect related to this uh, autonomous car, since, you know, it, it's safer, what's the problem? Well, the ethical issues have, have um, 
been discussed elsewhere, as I, as I also mentioned in the paper, but not to the degree and extent that I think that they need have been. Um, most commonly, people talk about something in philosophy called the trolley problem, um, yes. which has been widely written about, um, credited to a philosopher named Philippa Foote back mm -hmm. in 1967, who wrote about it in an entirely different context. Mm -hmm. But that trolley problem has been applied to autonomous vehicles and in, in many other well-thought-out well articles. Now, um, tell us what's, are, what's this trolley problem. I'm not what sure is the trolley problem? It. Yes. Ah, okay, the trolley problem, in, in typical philosophic style, asks people to just suppose um, a situation occurs like the following. Suppose that there's a runaway trolley on trolley tracks, and it's heading for five people who are tied to the tracks. Now, why five people are tied to trolley tracks, we don't, we don't know. But that's beside the point. This is a philosophic exercise. So uh -huh. the, track, the trolley's on its way down the track, going to run over five people. And you, the innocent bystander, are standing there, and by simply pulling a lever, you can switch the trolley to a different track with only one person tied to that track. Why there's one person tied to a trolley track, we'll never know either. But the questions then have to do with whether you, the bystander, should pull the lever. If you don't do anything, five people die. If you pull the lever, only one person dies. And most people um, would say, well, of course you should. You should prevent the death of the four additional people. And although each option is, is a terrible option, death is always terrible, you know, and you don't want to be responsible for that you should try to do the, the best thing possible in the situation. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's interesting because cognitive scientists, neuroscientists have looked at this and psychologists, and they've actually run tests on groups of people. And most people at this point would say, kill one, don't kill five. But there are other questions um, that come mm -hmm. up. You know, is it just only calculating the number who die? Should we consider who the people are? You know, what if the five people are terrible people and the one person is, you know, I don't know, mm -hmm. a saint? Um, what if the one person on the track is your child or your partner or spouse? Would that change your opinion? Would that make you more inclined to let the train run over the five without your intervention? Um, et cetera, et cetera. We but could go these on are endlessly discussing decisions? that. I mean, who, who takes the... Uh, well, they... Well, the, the bystander would be presumably quickly making this kind of calculation in, in his or her mind. And the point of this in the, in the realm that we're discussing has to do with forced choice scenarios like those that drivers have to make all the time. You know, um, you have to swerve into an oncoming lane to avoid a guy on the side of the road changing a tire, or you have to, you know, brake suddenly because a box falls off a truck in front of you moving on the highway or whatever. There are constant decisions that drivers have to make nearly instantaneously mm -hmm. without full information. And driverless cars are going to be making those same decisions. Mm -hmm. And this is where it gets interesting and where philosophy, applied mm -hmm. ethics, public health, and autonomous vehicles, sometimes called driverless cars, but autonomous vehicles, where all of this coalesces because we need to be thinking about what kinds of algorithms they are being programmed with now, and they are, um, to make these kinds of instantaneous decisions that truly have ethical and public health implications. Mm -hmm. So the question about forced choices and um, the kinds of algorithms that they're, they're making have been discussed in, of course, in the automotive design world. These are things that people are really thinking about. Mm -hmm. But public health impact has not been as rigorous or sustained or informed as I think it mm -hmm. could be.
So what, what would you suggest, I mean, to uh, address uh, this issue uh, from a public health perspective and not from an individual, you know, decision-making? Right. Well, I think that there's, there's lots of complicated um, discussions that need to take place. And my article, not surprisingly, doesn't present a solution to the trolley problem or a solution to forced choice algorithms, but does advocate for public health experts and public health ethics experts uh, to get involved more in all the kinds of issues that you talked about, in whether it's ethical to drive resources away from healthier options like bike and walking mm -hmm. paths toward autonomous vehicles, especially cars, which are single passenger or small number of passengers, mm -hmm. whether they should be tested in communities without the community's input, which is an issue that is ongoing right now. And of course, public health is very committed to community engagement um, and community advocacy and informed participation. And I'd like to see more of that when we talk about testing of autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, I alluded briefly to um, the benefits for disabled people and so on for autonomous vehicles. But I'd also like to see them examined as far as who's really likely to be riding in autonomous vehicles, especially if they're small cars, you know, few passengers, and how they can be made to benefit the more vulnerable or economically disadvantaged populations as well. So here again, there's a place for public health um, mm -hmm, thought mm -hmm. and public health um, you know, contributions that experts in public health can really ba make, and based in science and based in, in data, but yet looking at the ethical issues as well. That's, that's fantastic. Very, very interesting. And uh, thank you so much, Janet. I think you really uh, put together your MPH and your PhD in, in a great way. You make us think of this issue uh, well in advance. I think it's the right time to ask ourselves these questions, and they are very complicated. So... We need to address them early. Thank you very much. Thank Take you so care. much. Bye bye. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. I stepped out. <laughs> I'm back. No, no, no problem. How are you doing, Noah? Doing well, yeah. Fine. Thank you. Thank you so much for participating uh, to this podcast with uh, AJPH. So, uh, Noah Goodall, uh, you are with the Virginia Transportation Research Council in Charlottesville, Virginia, right? Yes, that's correct. So what's, what's your, uh, and, and you wrote this uh, editorial from trolleys to risk models for ethical autonomous driving. So what's your connection with autonomous driving? You know, wh what's your experience with it? What's your knowledge of it? Sure. So I'm a civil engineer by training, um, and the Virginia Transportation Research Council is a division of the Virginia Department of Transportation, so we're part of a state agency. Uh, we're very interested in how automated vehicles will be integrated um, into transportation systems and things that state government can do to try to um, speed up the adoption and kind of minimize the downsides of these technologies. Mm -hmm. So that's it's roughly my experience on the safety, uh, traffic engineering, kind of uh, planning uh, side of things. So, uh, I mean, are we going towards a, a situation where there will be mostly autonomous cars in the streets or? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they may not operate kind of the way we drive, um, but you're going to see some rollouts 
pretty soon. You're already starting to see highway driving. Uh, you see Teslas can do that right now. A lot of the automakers have some kind of capability there um, where they can follow the car in front of them. And they can stay within their lane as long as the conditions are pretty good. So you'll see that roll out uh, for freeways because you have this nice controlled environment. You also see it roll out at very low speeds really soon. Um, so these are people movers that would drive around a college campus or around an airport and they'd stay below 15, 20 miles an hour. At those speeds, uh, anytime the vehicle gets confused, it can just stop with no repercussions. And that's kind of a nice safety fallback. Uh, you can't really do that on a freeway. So those mm-hmm. are kind of the two ways you'll start to see these happen. Um, I suspect you'll see a lot of these vehicles uh, in the next 10 years or so. Uh, uh-huh. They'll be everywhere. The, the capabilities will always be a little bit limited uh, for a long time, but you'll definitely see them uh, in different uses. But just to make me, uh, you know, myself an idea of how this will look, you know, I don't have a car, but I rent, so with my phone app, I could actually uh, ask my car to come and take me at my home and uh, and lead me where I want to go, or... Sure. Yeah, that's the thing, is once these become truly driverless, when they can operate without a human monitoring it at all times. Maybe a human can kind of patch in remotely if it gets in in a tough spot and kind of navigate it through a spot. But once it can really operate without a human in the driver's seat, uh, these things become very, very uh, uh, (laughs) game-changing. You can do things like, yeah, call up your app and basically like you're calling an Uber or a Lyft, except it's much, much cheaper uh, because there's no human driver involved. And so this really changes how transit works, right? Transit usually uses these high-volume uh, buses and trains because they have to pay a driver and that's expensive. Um, they could start right-sizing their solutions, have very small vehicles, maybe one-seater vehicles that come pick you up. Um, product delivery could come this way. There's a, a, a few few companies that are doing sidewalk delivery robots. They're about knee-high. They would deliver your packages to you, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you'll see this. It'll be very, very uh, – it'll change the way we do a lot of things. Um, parking, for example, if a car can really drive itself, it doesn't really need to park. Um, it can drop you off downtown and drive back out of the suburbs. It can start working as a taxi while you're at work if you own the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect to see a lot less personal ownership and a lot more kind of large fleets of these things that operate like an Uber or a Lyft. Mm-hmm. But from a public health perspective, should we be sad that all this technology goes into individual cars rather than into public transportation? Uh, we're hoping that public transportation can utilize this technology. There's no need for these to be all privately owned by individual citizens anymore. So I think what you'll see is kind of a, um, a merging, a blurring of the lines between private ownership, where you might own a car, but it works as a taxi for large portions of the day when you don't need it, and uh, merging that with uh, traditional transit services who might start getting into these smaller vehicles and start doing um, – Say you take the train, and then with the the problem we call the last mile problem, where you get you get they let you off at the train station, you still have to get that last mile to work. How do you do that? These things could really supplement that if they're working for the transit agency, and also um, combining those two things with these um, private ride sharing services we see now, like Uber, Lyft, uh, taxi services, things like that. Uh, you combine those three, you have a very seamless transportation network that we've never had before. Uh-huh. But what about buses then? I mean, now sure. we want to have cars out of the the streets in New York. At least we want to have buses and bus sure. lanes, etc. Mm-hmm. So, how does it fit with this? Sure. Well, yeah, it's hard to tell how it's going to play out, but I think the ideal situation is you do have automated buses um, because uh, if you look at, say, the Holland or the Lincoln Tunnel in New York, uh, there's lots of buses moving through those, and they're all full. And I mm-hmm. highly doubt. For person mile movement, you can beat that. It's just incredibly high volume. Those will remain where they're still um, economically sustainable and kind of and where we want them if we want to regulate uh, these types of things in there. But uh, yeah, you're going to see um, 
private vehicles and small vehicles start to make up more of this. The uh, the the one thing that might come out of this that's really good is these vehicles uh, are able, are able to do electrification uh, much easier because they're smaller. They don't require as much energy, and because they can kind of drive themselves to a charging station, um, that kind of helps a lot with the recharging process. You know, um, so that we we kind of call hoping these will be more electrified and that should have some uh, environmental uh, benefits. Yeah. Another thing that, you know, I, I find kind of um, uh, astonishing is that those autonomous cars that don't have drivers are actually more uh, safer than uh, the usual cars that have drivers, etc. Right, is, yeah, is absolutely. Is true? It is, <laughs> yeah. So what's, what's interesting with these things, they're, they're so good at doing things that we're not very good at as, as people. If you look at crash statistics, the number of crashes that are single vehicle crashes, I think it's like 30% or so. Or, and it's a typical situation where you see someone kind of drive off the road a little bit, then they overcorrect to get back on. Or they were texting, or they were uh, driving drunk, or driving on drugs. Uh, a lot of crashes happen when people fall asleep at the wheel. Uh, we didn't have a good understanding of that until we started putting cameras in cars as part of studies to try to see kind of what was actually happening during these crashes. You saw a lot of people falling asleep as they drove. So these kinds of simple mistakes uh, machines are great at. Uh, if you ever ride in one, it's incredible. They stay right in the middle of the lane i mean dead on in the center there so these little things are really good at uh, right now they're really bad at things that we're really good at like telling the difference between a tree and a person is kind of hard for an automated vehicle it's really easy for us um we yeah, saw this that is, this is the topic actually of, of your editorial and, and then <laughs> yeah. of the, the paper uh, by john right. fleetwood so mm -hmm. it's uh, the, uh so so they're great at, at you know avoiding accident, but sometimes they cannot uh, distinguish between a person and a tree. That's what you said. Yeah, just distinguishing their environment. The, the Tesla fatality, where the car ran into the side of an eighteen wheeler. Everyone said, "How could you possibly do that?" Well, a white eighteen wheeler looks a lot like the sky to one of these video sensors, and so something something that you'd rarely see a human do, but a computer will do that occasionally. And so that's that's where it gets confusing, especially if you're a passenger, because the car can track itself perfectly in the middle of the lane. So you kind of assume it's good at everything else, uh, but it's not. It's bad in very unexpected ways, <laughs> depending on how the, what the sensors can read and what they can't. All right. And so so what what's the solution for that? I mean, uh, do we need to have a driver next in the car anyway that doesn't drive or... Right. So that, that that person can text, can sleep, can do mm -hmm. things like that and be present when needed or what? So that's the solution for the short term is to have the driver engaged and they're monitoring the system. Uh, we know that's really hard for people to do. We have trouble getting airline pilots to monitor an automated system. It's just really hard to stay focused when it seems to be doing what it's supposed to do. So there's a couple ways around it. One, this, the vehicle can start to kind of understand when it doesn't know something and maybe start alerting the driver. Um, you can also have uh, redundant sensors seem to help a lot of this. So instead of just having video looking ahead, you have video, radar, LIDAR, sonar, um, all those working together seem to uh, form a pretty good picture of what's going on. Um, and you can also have uh, a remote operator, so someone back in a room who's just kind of monitoring five or six of these things on, on video monitors, uh, and they are looking for problems they can take over if needed. So you're bringing the cost down, so you don't have one-to-one uh, -one driver to vehicle relationships, uh, but you still have that extra layer of safety. And the final one, which we really like to do, and we've worked on this for a long time, is getting vehicles to talk to each other. Right? If in the Tesla crash, if that truck had just said, "Hey, I'm a truck," and just why, you know, why did they have to look for a truck? It should have just told it, "I'm a truck." Um, and so we can have. Uh, there's a section of the bandwidth in the U.S. Uh, that's uh, kind of 
um, apportioned off for vehicle to vehicle communication. Uh, these are little radios you put in the car that cost about $200, $300. So hopefully that'll start rolling out and they can just talk to each other and share information directly. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But, uh, just one last question, Noah. Uh, these, these problems, these issues, you know, ethical issues that we face with uh, those autonomous cars, are they really different from the ones that we face when we have, you know, vaccine rationing or uh, organ donation, etc.? I mean, uh, when we have to, to, make, uh, to choose between two options and, and none of them being perfect. Yeah, in my perspective, it's very similar problems. Uh, with driving, you, you are creating risk every time you drive. And the, the ethical question to me is how do you distribute that risk equitably among other people, among pedestrians, among other cars, among yourself? Um, and that's a lot what is what's going on with these other fields with, um, organ donation. We only have so many organs. How do we decide who gets them? Mm-hmm. Um, and when philosophers talk about, they try to kind of pick one school of thought, like we're going to do utilitarianism or we're going to do some kind of deontological ethical solution. But when you look at how they're actually solved in other areas, they combine two different fields together. So with organ donation, typically it's a combination of sickest first, which is utilitarianism. The sickest person mm-hmm. gets it first. Um, but also some, uh, some kind of rule-based system going uh, into that, like first come, first served. All right. So the First person show up, no matter how sick you are or not sick, you'd still get it. They combine those two. That seems to work really well. So I think mm-hmm. with automated vehicles, how you distribute the risk among different parties is going to be some kind of a combination of that. And we'll see how that evolves. It's still coming together. But so if you have to choose between a, um, a person and five dogs, Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we don't know yet. Um, that's and and I I always caution against those really discreet choices because every time we bring those up, the automakers say, "Oh, when does that ever happen? That's never going to happen. We'll just slow down." And it's true; those that's a kind of a wild situation. But you do have these much more subtle situations. We have a risk of a crash. I had one the other day where I was driving. There's a large truck behind me. And I saw a dog starting to run out in the road. It looked like it was going to collide with me. That's a very clear choice there. Do I have to keep going and hit that dog? Do I break a lot, risk the truck behind me hitting me, or do I kind of have some combination there? Now, that's not any kind of code you're going to see if dog runs into road, do this. It's, it's going to be this. It's a mix of different algorithms that don't always know what the other ones are doing. Um, and But there is some real outcome there. A, a dog dies. I am kind of scarred by having to run over this dog. I didn't want to, right? or I'm risking a crash of the truck. These, are, these things happen all the time, and these are so much more subtle. Uh, but things that have real consequences, once you start scaling up, we drive in the U.S. alone 3 trillion miles a year. So any kind of weird thing you can think of will happen many, many times. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's really interesting. Thank you so much, Noah. I mean, uh, my pleasure. Uh, I think that's great insight about what's coming and, and those ethical issues are, are uh, you know, we, we must uh, address them. Thank you. And, uh, Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hello. Hello, I hear Hello. you. Yeah, hey, Sherry. Uh, uh, Dr. Sherry Gleed, thank you so much for participating to this uh, interview for the podcast of AJPH. Uh, you are currently uh, dean uh, at uh, the New York University Robert Wagner Graduate School of Public Health. And... Uh, uh, 
you, you have had a very long experience. I've counted at least 25 years of experience with uh, dealing with policy and insurance, etc. Can, can you tell us a little bit of your background that led you to write this paper, The Future of the Affordable Care Act and Insurance Coverage for AJPH? Sure. So I spent much of my career at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I was a professor there in the Department of Health Policy and Management and eventually the chair of that department. And I had during that time the opportunity to go to Washington and I worked for uh, the presidency of George H.W. Bush, the first George Bush when he wanted to work on a health care plan. And I stayed on and I worked on the ill-fated Clinton healthcare reform proposal. So when I returned from Washington, I became very engaged in health policy issues and health policy research, particularly around the problems of the uninsured in America. Mm -hmm. um, and I continued to work on that. I had a lot of publications and funding and so on for quite a long time. And then in when President Obama was elected, uh, his administration asked me to come to Washington and work in the Department of Health and Human Services mm -hmm. uh, in implementing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I got there just after the law was passed, and I worked for a couple of years in Washington on the implementation of the law, and then I returned to New York and eventually took this job at the Wagner School. Um, but I've been very much committed to the problems of addressing the pro problems of the uninsured mm -hmm. and reforming the healthcare system for all this time. And mm -hmm. uh, so I was very pleased when the Affordable Care Act pl passed, mm -hmm. and I'm somewhat concerned about where the, the policy discussion is going right now. But can we say that you have some insider view of uh, about uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare? Very much. I mean, I was definitely there when we were working on the regulations, and I think um, it is a very, very complicated problem, the problem of trying to address the U.S. healthcare system, which is so fragmented, has so many different moving pieces to it, uh, is very challenging. And spending two years on implementation really brought home to me how complex and challenging a problem it really is and how if you if you break parts of it, you can actually have some uh, uh, further effects, some some downstream effects that are that are different than you had than you might have anticipated. But so, in terms of the consequences, positive consequences for the uninsured, what would you say? You know, briefly, are the main positive consequences of Obamacare that we can observe? Well, the today? number of people. The number of people who are uninsured has dropped substantially. In fact, at this moment, or at the last survey, uh, the, the percentage of the population uninsured in the U.S. was the lowest it has ever been in history, which is not not zero by any means, but much, much lower than it had been in the past, and really uh, showing some signs of approaching almost universal coverage. And the evidence that has looked at, uh, the studies that have looked at what happens to people who gain insurance has shown, I think not unexpectedly, that they have greater access to care, mm -hmm. they're more likely to be using services, they face fewer financial burdens, they're less likely to be in medical debt. Um, so all of the good things that we hope to achieve through health insurance coverage um, for individuals uh, have definitely been, been accomplished through extending coverage to people. Mm -hmm. And moreover, Hospitals have uh, escaped the burden of uncompensated care, which I think in health departments have also been able to move their attention away from just providing routine care to uninsured people mm -hmm. uh, to, towards population health activities. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely fantastic. But are there also weaknesses in, in, in Obamacare? I mean, it's, it's in its current version. There certainly are. I mean, one of the concerns is that... Um, the law was designed to touch, in effect, only the uninsured people. So unlike 
health reform laws in many countries, which are which are kind of universalistic in their approach. This is a very very targeted law that was really just focused on the the number the people who remained uninsured in the existing system, and that creates some real challenges. For one thing, it's not a very it's a large population relative to most countries in the world, but it's a small population relative to the size of the United States, mm-hmm. and so uh, in some states, particularly since the law is is structured to operate within the context of the U.S. federal system, there are relatively few people in these new marketplaces. There's not enough competition about among health insurance plans. The program is designed around competition among private health insurance plans, for better or worse. If that competition doesn't exist, um, I think that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And the markets uh, had shown very large premium increases most recently, which is also a problem in terms of their stability. And finally, um, while the people who got coverage through the Medicaid expansion, which was really focused on the lowest income uninsured and which 30 states plus the District of Columbia are participating in. For those who are in the next level of income, sort of the low income, working, working families, for example, the coinsurance and deductibles in the plans that they have under the Affordable Care Act are quite high. I see, I see. And uh, when you wrote your, uh, your commentary for uh, AJPA, this was December, you know, we have delays in, in publication. And so at that time you discussed the two alternatives that the, the Congress would have now between repeal or repeal and replace. Uh, today, uh, do you see things differently? Do you think one of these two alternatives is more probable? Well, when we wrote it, actually, it was kind of nerve-wracking writing it because we didn't know what would happen by now, and all of the signs were that something would already have happened, and in fact, nothing has happened yet. Um, so in some sense, that's probably, from, from the perspective of our article, perhaps a very good thing. Um, originally, I think the first thought was that they would simply repeal the law and not replace it. But then I think at this point, that is an unlikely outcome, although there is still a group among the House Republicans who would like to proceed in that way, mm-hmm. um, repealing big provisions of the law without making any uh, effort to replace them. Um, because of the rules of the, the way the Senate works, they could not repeal um, the provisions of the law that change the way insurers operate. And so... Um, Various estimators have suggested that if they just did what they plan to do, it would probably cause a very large disruption in the insurance market. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, I have a final question because I know you you are in a hurry now. Uh, but I was very curious to see that in California they were talking about introducing a single payer system for health insurance there mm-hmm. in case they were, you know, uh, um, repealing uh, the Affordable Care Act. What, what's your opinion about that? Well, one of the interesting things in the Affordable Care Act is that there's actually a section in it that says that states could maintain the flow of federal funds if they change the law in a way, if they implement a law within their own state that provides at least as much insurance coverage at no higher cost. And one option for doing that surely is a single-payer plan. Vermont had considered doing it as well, um, and now California is. I think it is very important that they be able to continue to tap the federal funding if they do that. I think it would be uh, probably impossible for California to do it if they could not rely on the federal funding that has been put into Medicaid and the health insurance exchanges um, as well as perhaps Medicare. So I think with all of these things, um, money is always a problem and the devil is in the details. Mm-hmm. 
But that's very, very interesting. Thank you very much, Sherry. And I re uh, recall that uh, your uh, paper is called The Future of the Affordable Care Act and Insurance Coverage, and you wrote it with Adlan Jackson, and it's coming in this uh, April issue of AJPH. Thank you so much for participating, and have a good trip. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Spanish podcast, I interview Dr. Yanin Estrada about her trial in Florida entitled Familias Unidas. And I also interview three students of Columbia University who compose each month the global news page of AJPH. All the articles mentioned in this podcast are available in open access. Note that uh, to be immediately informed about the paper soon to be published in AJPH or about calls for paper, follow me on Twitter. Thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at AJPH.org.